Good morning. Um, the scripture reading today is from Daniel chapter 4, verses 27 through 37. And you can follow along in your Bible or the screen behind me. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will." Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom... My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom heaven, king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble." This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Justin Kramer. I'm one of the elders here. It's good to be with you guys. Let's do this. Let's start our time in prayer, and then we can look at Daniel chapter 4. Heavenly Father, we have so many competing interests this morning. Lord, even in my own heart wrestling with all the things that want to grab my attention. Lord, I think it's in these moments that we're reminded just how little we're interested in you. Lord, on one hand, we're eager to hear from you. We're eager to meet with you. But on the other hand, we're thinking about things like home and family and lunch plans and all of those things you've given to us by your providence and your care. Lord, but you have 
brought each of us here, despite all of the currents and headwinds that we faced, even this morning, this week, Lord, you have brought us here by your gracious kindness. And we need, as Moses did on the mountain, we need to see your face. It is the only hope we have. So we trust you to be with us. Lord, you do something unique, something special, the way you've designed when your word is opened, considered, Lord, your Holy Spirit throughout all of history has come and met with your people in those moments. And we don't pretend that we're the only ones here in Myrtle Beach trying to be faithful stewards of your word. Lord, we know there are other brothers and sisters in churches all across Horry County, but all across this state, all across this country, all across this land, this world, that are faithfully wanting to love you and serve you and faithfully do it in a world that has a, a growing disinterest in Christians. Lord, and Daniel is a good guide for us in thinking about what it means to live faithfully. So whatever you have for us in Daniel chapter 4, pray that you would make it clear, Lord. You would lay it out for us. Lord, that we may use it as nourishment to our spiritual man. Lord, that instead of stumbling into Sunday, that we would go out here energized. That we would go out eager. To, as Johann prayed, lift your name up. We cannot do this without your help. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Bless our time this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one thing the pandemic did for me was it allowed me to pursue one of my favorite hobbies, which is TV. I love movies. I feel like I have a, a fairly wide cinematic palette and so think for a moment. I want, you to, I want you to think for a moment. Who is your favorite movie character? Just think. Maybe you're a Marvel guy or girl, right? I like Jason Bourne. He's not number one, but he's in the top ten for me. Or, or maybe you're, uh, like my daughters, maybe you're big fans of Anna and Elsa. Whoever your favorite movie character is, right, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more worthy Golden Globe candidate in the Bible than Daniel. Daniel, here so far in the book, has put on one of the best performances of any major character in the Bible. I mean, think about it for a minute. From the very beginning of Daniel, he absolutely crushes the diet and fitness game, right? He, he then looks at the most powerful king in all of the world at the time, confronts him, and what does the king do in return? He gives him favor, access. He compensates him well. He takes care of him. Daniel, while standing up for his God, is rewarded with political access, influence, Favor, wealth likely. 
Daniel's political career lasted some 70 years in Babylon. Why don't you think about that? Imagine someone being at the center of American politics since Dwight Eisenhower was president. It's incredible. In fact, many Christians have said Daniel is the model for what it means to be faithful in a fallen world. But, but if we're honest, we also like the fact that Daniel, for that faithfulness, isn't chastised or persecuted other than in small parts. He's rewarded. Right? And if, if all we do, because we're, we're rolling into chapter 4, if all we do is see the book of Daniel from Daniel's perspective, we miss a significant part of the book of Daniel. In fact, to this point, Daniel's obviously the hero, but there's another main character we've seen so far, the antagonist, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so I want to caution us as we consider chapter four this morning, let's take a step back and see what we might learn, not just from Daniel, but from the king in chapter four. We pick up in verse four of chapter four, and Nebuchadnezzar, this is what's considered his fourth act, right? So, so far in the book of Daniel, we've had the king constructing a golden image for worship. We've had his first dream that was also interpreted by Daniel. Then we had, just a couple of weeks ago, the incident with the three and the fiery furnace. And so now we are moving into the fourth chapter and the fourth act of the king's presence here in Daniel. And this is the final chapter, the final words we'll ever hear about King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the king has another dream, and it rattles his cage pretty good. And so from verses 4 to 19... Just read, I just, if you have your Bibles, open it up. We'll be in and out of it, but just I'll read this for you. Verse 4, it says, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. Well, that's pretty good. You know, in, in each of these three instances, Nebuchadnezzar, for a moment, acknowledges the God of Daniel, doesn't he? He says things like, uh, the most high. The God of, uh, of Daniel who does signs and wonders. But to this point, all it's been is lip service. Because here we have the king back to his old ways. His self-serving, self-exalting agenda. And so when he has a dream that frightens him, instead of doing what seems obvious to us, and if you've been with us on this series, there's only one guy in all the kingdom that knows what the dream means. It's Daniel. But King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't ask Daniel right away. He brings in his cronies to try and give it a swing. And they strike out again. So, King Nebuchadnezzar then goes to Daniel and he tells him the dream. And here's the dream. There's a tree 
that grows all the way up to heaven. And once it gets to heaven, it covers all of the birds, it covers all of the animals, it covers all of the land, giving them shade, protection. And then some celestial beings, which Nebuchadnezzar identifies as the watchers, instruct the tree to be chopped down to a stump. And then the stump stays there. So when King Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel this dream, it alarms even Daniel. If you see in verse 19, Daniel says, I was dismayed for a while, and his, or or Daniel's thoughts, alarmed him. Daniel knows what the dream means. And it scares him a little. In fact, Daniel sort of offers or stretches out a hand of compassion to the king. And he says, oh, king, before he interprets the dream, I wish for your sake that this dream was not about you, but about your enemies. And Daniel tells him, The dream and the tree is you. And your kingdom is going to be cut down. You're going to roam like a beast, not a human, for a period of time. You're going to go from fully independent to totally dependent. You're going to go from powerful to powerless. You're going to go from wealth to poverty. You're going to go from influential to irrelevant. I've had some tough conversations in my life, never that one. Right? And Daniel's like batting a thousand at this point. He'd never been wrong. And so this is some heavy-handed judgment coming down on King Nebuchadnezzar. It, It may be obvious to us, but let's at least ask the question. What has Nebuchadnezzar done that has infuriated God so badly? It's pride. It's pride. Now, I love how one pastor very easily defined pride. He said it's the sin of exalting self as king. It is self-centered rather than Christ-centered. Pride is the worshiping or the elevating or the adorning or the lifting up of self, the, the making much of self putting self at the center of your universe and then looking out amongst all the people that you're in relationship with and even those that you're not and expecting to be the center of their world. Pride is self-serving rather than Christ-serving. 
C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, has a, a chapter on pride. And here's what he says. Pride by nature is competitive. It seeks pleasure by outperforming someone or something else. You see, because pride is always performance-related. Always. When we fall prey to pride, what we do is attach our performance to our identity. Right? That's why pride often, almost exclusively, shows itself in two forms, arrogance or shame. Right? Because we're judging our performance. You, you say something like your, your feelings are hurt. They're not hurt. Your ego is hurt. Feelings don't, can't be hurt. But our performance, other people's opinion of our performance can be wounded. And so what we do, right, is we attach our, our, our performance to our identity. And what does Satan do, right? Satan comes in and whispers in our minds and in our hearts that our performance is not only attached to our identity, but it's attached to our standing before God. Right? That's why when we're, when we're reading our Bibles, we're getting up in the morning and we're praying, we're coming to Sunday service, we're setting up and tearing down, we're feeling good about where we are with God. When we're angry or we tell a lie or we do something that we perceive not to be a standard Christian performance, we immediately feel, whether we know it or not, consciously or subconsciously, our performance shift. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, hammers down on this point. He says, no, no, no. Your performance and your identity are no longer attached. That's how Paul can say, I'm going to boast in nothing but Christ, but I'm still the chief of sinners. Not was, I am. There's nobody that sins worse than I do, but I can boast in Christ and his grace is sufficient. Christ purchased the separation of your performance and your identity. Now, it's clear Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know that. How many of us know that? And our performance is not attached to our identity. Maybe even some of us here are sort of already thinking about lunch, ready to check Instagram, go home and watch the Masters today, because you say, I'm not prideful. I'm not, pr- I don't, I'm not proud. Well, C.S. Lewis in that same chapter says, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Now, C.S. Lewis isn't Jesus. I think he's right. But what's interesting about pride, let's take a step back because we're going to come back to our pride in a minute. What's interesting, though, is the king, King Nebuchadnezzar's pride has landed him in literally hot water with God. But Daniel offers him what appears to be conditional destruction. 
Right? Look, 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 at, look, at verse, look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. That word also means justice. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What Daniel is offering him is quid pro quo. Listen, if you just practice righteousness and mercy, I'm pretty sure God's going to let it slide. This is a conditional offer from Daniel on behalf of God to the king. And lest we think this is unusual, this is common in Old Testament prophecy. Right, if you go back to Amos, I'll just read for you quickly. Uh, uh, the prophet Amos is bringing judgment on Israel. And he says, perhaps the Lord, uh, assuming they follow X, Y, and Z, will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. So it is not uncommon at this point in the arc of the biblical narrative for prophets to offer some sort of conditional destruction. And he says, listen, all you gotta do is break off your sinful, prideful ways and pursue righteousness or, or justice and mercy. It's kind of interesting. He doesn't say, hey, listen, the vaccine for your pride, king, is humility. He gives a very specific instruction. Justice and mercy. Justice in the Bible is always seen as fighting against oppressive or morally corrupt instances, individuals. Justice is fighting upstream towards what is right and good. Right? And mercy in the Bible minister to those who've been affected by injustices. So justice is doing or fighting for what is right and mercy is carrying out blessing and service to those who've been affected by being wronged. Daniel's instruction for the king to combat his pending judgment is to no longer serve self literally on the backs of other men and women but to care for and serve them. Now, you and I have a complete Bible. Daniel did not. Right? So let's look at Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. <clears throat> Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, pride, but also to the interests of others, justice and mercy. But the verse doesn't stop there. Verse 5 continues. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Church, the, the, the pace setter, the, the, the forerunner, the example we have for justice and mercy, for gospel humility, is Christ himself. I, I love how Tim Keller, in his uh, absolute wonderful little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says this. He summarizes gospel humility. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. The gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Let's get back to King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the, the, the plot is thickening here. And I find myself wanting Nebuchadnezzar, please, just uncle, just do the right thing, right? Because it's easy. We would obviously take Daniel's instruction, right? We would obviously practice justice and mercy and break off our sins. So, in true form, starting in verse 28, the king, in fact, does not repent. It says, verse 29, at the end of 12 months, this is a year later, right? I mean, I don't know what kind of time frame God works off of, but that feels like enough time to repent and turn from your pride. At the end of, this is verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built my, by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? I mean, let, let, let's give the king a little credit here. Babylon was the largest kingdom in all of the known world at the time. And it had two of the seven ancient wonders of the world. They had built a wall that uh, was so big that it was said that a four-wide horse chariot could turn around on top of it. There was also the hanging gardens. So, so you could kind of understand why he's feeling pretty good walking amongst his palace, looking at his vast kingdom. And as the words are coming out of his mouth, judgment falls. Like a guillotine coming down on a neck, the judgment of the Lord comes on King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 30 says, and, and the king, I'm sorry, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, he was driven from among men. Now there's some speculation as to what happens Right? But best we can tell, both from uh, the biblical narrative and from uh, extra-biblical historical documents that would support that time period, is the king goes insane. He has a mental episode, and he literally roams around like a beast. We don't know for exactly how long. It's most likely that it was seven years. 
He's literally roaming around, going from the top of the food chain to the bottom of the food chain. Now, I think a question that we ought to ask here is, is all pride and punishment this transactional? Right? If you're proud, are you going to be punished? Psalm 73 actually seems to be concerned about the opposite. So for the first 17 verses in Psalm 73, the psalmist is pouting. He's whining. Why are the wicked flourishing? Why do the proud, the arrogant, the haughty seem to have it all going their way? Where are you, God? And then the Holy Spirit sort of lifts the psalmist's chin. And in verse 18, he says, No, O Lord, you make them fall to ruin. Because sin, pride, never goes unpunished. Whether it is in this world or the world to come. And we're going to see in a moment, God has some very, very pointed things to say about pride. But moving along in our text here, after he serves his sentence, in in verse 34, it says that the king lifted his eyes to heaven. Finally, some good news for this guy. And while we ought to be relieved for his sake that he lifted his eyes to heaven and submitted in that moment to the God of Daniel, we don't need to confuse this with repentance. We don't need to confuse this with Nebuchadnezzar turning from his sin and trusting in the God of Daniel. We need to view this more as a criminal being sorry they were caught. We have no indication that King Nebuchadnezzar ever trusted in the God of Daniel. Now, we get to the most important part of Daniel chapter 4. The point of the whole chapter and the point of this sermon. It's the final ten words that Nebuchadnezzar speaks in the Bible. Verse 38. There is no verse 38, is there? You add into your Bible. It's 37b, okay? And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Seems sort of fitting that those would be the final words that we hear from the king. It appears that King Nebuchadnezzar's life is really no different than what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of being in, in Matthew 23. He says, oh, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're nothing but whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. 
In the book of 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel tells the people of Israel, don't you remember that God does not look at things the way man does? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, we can't examine Nebuchadnezzar's heart, but we can and we will, Lord willing, in the next few minutes, attempt to examine our own hearts as it relates to pride. So let's ask a question, a couple questions. How many of us consider ourselves to be proud? How many, how many of you would consider yourself to be a prideful person? How many of us feel convicted or anxious about our pride on a regular basis? Or how about this? How many of us fight against our pride the way we fight against lust or, or with the same vigor that we fight against anger or lying? How many of us would say that we view our pride with the same disgust that God views it. Pride, at least one of the reasons pride is so dangerous is that it's a camouflage sin. It is often misdiagnosed. The Bible tells us that pride is a terminal illness and we're over here popping Claritin or Allegra or aspirin, misdiagnosing the sin. Pride is the root of all sin. It is the bottom of the barrel, the end of the rope, the tip of the spear. You say, prove it. Okay, the original sin of Satan leading a rebellion against God was pride. Sin entered the world through pride. Sin stays in the world through pride. C.S. Lewis in that same chapter says there is one vice of which no man in the world is free. It's pride. Now God through the Bible, has some very specific things to say about pride. Just give you a couple. Pride and arrogance, I hate. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And be assured, he will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction. Or how about in 1 Timothy 3, when, when Paul to Timothy is laying out the qualifications for an elder, he says, an elder must not be a new convert, must not be new to the faith, lest he be puffed up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I love what Kenyan pastor Ken Mbugwa said about pride. He says, we think we're dealing with smaller things. We're seeking accountability. We're aiming the gun at all the wrong things. And meanwhile, pride is killing us. 
This is not the first nor the last time that the Bible deals with a people or a person struggling with pride. Paul, in his his letter to the church in Corinth, his first letter, they were, by all accounts, an incredibly gifted church. And it created some problems. But at the the beginning, in the first four chapters, they're they're battling back and forth. The the church in Corinth is battling with one another. Nah, I think Paul's a better teacher. Nah, I think Cephas or Peter's a better teacher. Some were saying Apollos was a better teacher. You know what Paul says to them? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? Church, were you crucified for your sins? Were you buried or raised from the dead? Did we ascend to heaven? Are we sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now? No. When we are proud, we are attempting to steal glory from Christ himself. And that's a glory that he already paid for. And one of the reasons pride is so dangerous is not only is it misdiagnosed, not only is it corrosive, but it threatens our communion and it threatens our union with God himself. When we are proud we are consciously and unconsciously, subtly and directly telling ourselves, God, and the rest of the world that we are more valuable, more worthy, more desirable, more pleasurable, more satisfying than God himself. Nineteenth century... Theologian J.C. Ryle says this way. And the reason I'm quoting so many people is they just say it better than I could. Let us watch against pride in every shape. Pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride in our own goodness. Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him from seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something we shall never be saved. It is King Nebuchadnezzar's pride that kept him from ever seeing and trusting the God of Daniel. But pride is no respecter of persons. There is no one in this room that is not proud. And your pride may be evident to you or in Satan's great scheme, it may be hidden from you. I I found myself this week as I was wrestling through this text, I almost can't even go anywhere or do anything or say anything. I mean, I'm walking out my house the other day 
and my wife did something to me and I thought something, I'm like, dang, that's pride. It's everywhere. It's like my oldest daughter and I were making muffins and she said, daddy, I want to help. I don't like it when she helps me with muffins. She's messy. I pour the, I pour the powder in. They're not made from scratch muffins. Don't judge me. I pour the powder in, pour the water in. She says, I'm going to stir it, Dad. I say, okay, great. She starts stirring it. Somehow the bowl jumps off of the counter onto the ground. And it's not just powder, and it's not just water. It's the, the thick, gooey, mixed berry, Betty Crocker stuff on the rug. And so I take a, my wife's asleep, and so I, I would have asked her, I should have asked her. I take a wet rag and smear wet mud it's so the next thing you know, the whole rug is messed up. That's pride. Pride is like taking a wet rag on wet mud and trying to wipe it up. You can't do it. You cannot extract pride from the innermost part of your being. That puts us in a little bit of a pickle, doesn't it? If pride is the root of all sin. If pride is in and active in all of us, and pride could very well keep a man out of heaven, but certainly from communing with God intimately and regularly, what do we do about our pride? I'm sure there's lots of things that we could do. Let me give us four specific aids that I think are helpful in fighting our pride. Four things and we're going to finish. The first aid, I think, in fighting our pride is to simply be aware of how disgusting it is to God. He hates it. You know the first remedy to bad breath is just knowing that you have bad breath? You know the first remedy to fighting your pride is to recognize that you have it. And that the God who hung himself on a cross willingly slid your pride between the back of his hand and the wood and says, you don't have to perform anymore. I did it. So number one, recognize just how ugly it is to the very nostrils of God. Number two, remember where and what you were when God saved you. You weren't so great. I wasn't so great. We were rolling around in our sin and destruction when God came and saved us. First Corinthians. Paul, dealing with the same thing. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world that no human being might boast. You want to know how God found you? Read Ezekiel 16. 
Whew. Ezekiel says, you were a baby, still attached in your umbilical cord, laying around on the ground, rolling in your own blood when I found you. We weren't so great when God found us. But he found us. And it is no longer wrath that is on our schedule, is it? An aid and a helpful aid in fighting against the pride that lives in us is remembering how he found us. Number three. Boast in Christ. Don't just work harder at not boasting in self. Let's boast in Christ. Let's boast in Christ together. Let's sing of what he's done. Let's talk about the wonderful deeds that he's done. Let's remember all that he has done for us. And when one of us forgets, we remind each other, brother, let's boast in Christ. A helpful aid in fighting against our spirit of pride is not just to work harder at not talking about ourselves or as Tim Keller said about thinking about ourselves less, but it's to think about the one who saved us more. Let's boast in Christ. Number four, the final and the most sobering thing that we can do to fight pride is to remember judgment day. You get the feeling, particularly in Matthew, but throughout different scriptures in the Bible, that the judgment day is going to be sort of a surprise to people. Right? Number one, it comes as a thief in the night. But there's texts that say, Lord, did we not baptize in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all these things in your name? And he'd be like, I never knew you. Most commonly we think that when we stand before judgment, we'll do what? We'll give an account for our deeds, right? Well, guess what the other part of that verse says? That God will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of our heart. So we're not going to be judged just on what we did. We're going to be judged on the intentions of our heart when we did it. So, so we could be in a community group, coming to church on Sunday, going down to street reach every week, loving our family, tithing. We could be doing all the things. And if it is done from a heart that is proud, God hates it. Judgment Day will not be about our fruitfulness. Judgment Day will not be about our giftedness. Judgment Day will not be about what we did. Judgment Day will be about our faithfulness. Notice your Bible doesn't say 
Job well done, good and fruitful servant. Job well done, good and gifted servant. The very purposes of our heart will be laid out as God opens those scrolls and judges. Friends, we are full of pride, but Christ is not. We are sinful, but Christ is not. We are in need of help, and Christ is all we need. Let me pray for us, and then we want to turn our hearts to communion. Heavenly Father, we, we just confess. You tell us in James that if we are quick to confess, you are quick to heal. So we confess. I confess that I am proud. Even as I'm talking about pride, I'm fighting pride. I'm thinking about, ooh, how, how does, ooh that sounded good. Lord, we are proud to the very core of our bones. But we don't have to be. There is a more excellent way. There is a better way. It is your way. Lord, would you make us humble? Lord, because (laughs) one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess and we can either do it with joy in our hearts or fear in our eyes. And I pray, Lord, that we would be the type of people that joyfully submit and lay our pride, that we fight our pride with zeal and fervor. Lord, did we aim the spiritual guns at our pride and the pride of our brothers and sisters, knowing that it leads to destruction? Would you keep this body from pride and forgive us for the ways that we are proud? Lord, disclose not just the contents, but the purposes and intentions of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.